Hi, everyone. I'm Haley Augusta, and I'm your host of No Sex in the Suburbs, a podcast about marriage, sex, and momming so hard. The show is really dedicated to everything that happens after Happily Ever After. And if you've listened to my trailer, you know it's supposed to be a spoof on Sex in the City. So we all think we're Carrie Bradshaw and we meet our big love. And then we wind up married with a couple of kids in the suburbs. Surprise, surprise, it is not always a closet of couture. Now, the writers of the new Sex in the City show did not consult with me, so I'm not sure if they all became stay-at-home moms and started podcasts, but I'm looking forward to seeing the show nevertheless. Anyway, so as I was saying, it's not always happy. Sometimes it's not forever either. So today we're going to talk all things divorce. I feel like this could be timely given that 2020 was such a rough year where so much stress was piled on everyone. And we all make jokes about it on social media, but sometimes it's more than jokes. Sometimes it's serious. So today we're going to be joined by Janina Verano. She's a family law attorney specializing in complex litigation, which basically means she's a divorce attorney to the rich and famous. And she is going to break it down for us. We're going to talk about the most common patterns, uh, why marriages fail, and how to protect yourself if you are a stay-at-home mom and how to protect yourself if you are the working mom. Now, even if divorce is nowhere on your radar, I highly recommend listening to this episode. I feel like this is something that should be a part of Adulthood 101, just in case. Obviously, when people get married, nobody thinks that their marriage is going to end, but something like 50% of them do. So, I feel very lucky to have Janina on the show, and I hope you enjoy it. As always, if you do, drop me a line, let me know. I'm on Instagram at No Sex in the Suburbs, and you will be my hero if you leave me a five-star review on Apple. Thanks so much, and enjoy the show. Hi, Janina. Hi, Haley. How you doing? I'm doing great. Welcome to No Sex in the Suburbs. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Thank you so much for coming. I am so excited to have you on the show. I think you are going to be a great resource for our listeners. Um, as I was saying uh, in the intro, you are a family law attorney specializing in complex family law, but are here today to kind of give advice sort of as an attorney and sort of as a friend and sort of as a mom who's living living the dream. Hello, everyone. Uh, just, Haley, before we get started, I just wanted to give a quick disclaimer. I am a family law attorney, and I've agreed to do this interview with you today. But I just want to let all your listeners out there know that in no way am I purporting to give legal advice to anyone regarding any specific circumstances um, that may be happening in your life or your situation right now. So everything that I say should be taken with a grain of salt because every case is different. Excellent. So we're going to put you as a knowledge professional with your friendship hat on, just being a good friend. That sounds good. Excellent. All right. Well, let's get started. So I will just dive right into it. It seems like divorces and separations are on the rise since COVID. Is that actually true or is that just what it seems like? 
You know, I, like everyone else, have seen the Facebook memes and the Instagram memes, but I'll tell you from an industry standpoint, I think once the courts reopened in June of 2020, I did get kind of a surge in new clients. I will say a couple of those actually reconciled. So they filed for divorce and then they decided, no, we don't want to do this, and they and they reconciled. But I, I wouldn't say it's been much higher than than in past years. Okay, cool. Because that kind of brings me to my next question. How do you know when it's not, it's not you and, and it's not just circumstantial and, it, and it's time to maybe take the next step? Right. Well, I will say, I think in any relationship, and I've seen, you know, throughout my 10 years of practice, lots of marriages break up. But, and I will say as much as each spouse wants to blame the other, I often see I don't want to call it fault, but I often see behavior on both sides that results in the split. And, in, you know, I don't think it is anyone's fault per se, um, except in rare circumstances, but more so just you're not compatible anymore. <laughs> I think that's just, you know, they're unhappy, you're unhappy. It's not working out anymore for, for whatever reason. And you would rather go through the process of a divorce, which is no fun for anyone. I will tell you, all of my clients are going through perhaps the most stressful time of their lives. Um, you would rather go through that than, than remain in a relationship that you're unhappy in. And what are kind of the key patterns of being incompatible that you see? Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of different reasons why people, why people get divorced and, and I've seen lots of them. And so the one area where I think it's definitely someone's fault is the area of domestic violence, where there are legitimate acts of domestic violence that have occurred. And, and one of the spouses is being abused. And mind you, that could be either the man or the woman. I've seen it on both ends. So in those instances, I think there is someone at fault. You know, it's never okay to be physically violent towards your partner or Mind you, domestic violence can also be things like stalking and internet stalking and putting GPS trackers on cars and things like that. Um, those sorts of things are, are, I think, not excusable, and that may result in a split. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, okay, PSA to right. anyone listening. Yes. If, yeah. if your husband is hitting you, it's time to go. Sure. <laughs> exactly. So that's that's one extreme reason. And then other reasons, um, one of the the ones that I see often that I never thought of before working in this field was um, different, I guess, methodologies or priorities in raising children. You mm. know, the relationship worked just fine before you had children, but once you have children, one spouse wants to keep being the partier and going out and um, drinking all the time and, you know, traveling all the time and doing this and doing that. And the other partner is more um, concerned with being a parent and staying at home and going to the soccer games. And, um, you know, I'm not saying one or the other is, is right, but doesn't want to make that extra time. You know, they're, one, one parent, their life revolves around the child, and the other parent is just kind of a parent whenever they're not doing all the other stuff they're doing. So I think that that is one of the the patterns, or even as simple as I want to raise my child Jewish, and and he wants to raise the child Catholic, and we just cannot agree, and we're completely divergent upon those points. These are all things that I can't believe people didn't discuss before they had a child, but believe me, it happens. Um, mm-hmm. So those are that's a different pattern and then of course there's the standard infidelity um money 
you know, if one spouse loses a job or if one spouse is spending too much money and they're underwater and they keep spending and spending and spending, that's another reason. Um, mental illness is another reason. Um, and, and I'm not saying it's okay to leave your spouse because they're depressed or something, but sometimes the spouse just can't handle it anymore. They, they are at their wit's end and unhappy and have done everything for their spouse to try to support them through it. And nonetheless, it, you know, it doesn't get better. Um, I've seen that happen as well. Um, disability, believe it or not, uh, a spouse that, um, you know, undergoes a uh, freak accident and and is now in a wheelchair or something along those lines or, or can no longer work, can no longer earn the money they were making before. That's so um, sad. It is very sad. It is very sad, but I've done divorces like that. And then, mind you, as well, I've done several divorces where there's a child with special needs. Mm. That Those are the sad cases, and really, it's I, I think sometimes it just one parent – becomes the parent that is the advocate that is, you know, out there all the time with the child, taking them to their therapies, researching the best places, talking to all the professionals, doing this, doing that, and it's too much for the other parent. Um, and the other parent feels, I think, maybe secondary in the rela- in the family, like, you know, this child is more important to my spouse than I am. I think that's selfish, for the record. Personally, on a personal level, I think that's selfish. Um, but I've seen it. I've seen that happen as well. So those are like pretty serious kind of red flag divorces. What about we get in fights and maybe he, you know, ices me out or we can't communicate and then I get really serious, like, okay, this is over. I'm going to move forward with separation. And then it's this cycle of like, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll change. I'll do whatever you want. I want my family to stay together. Do you, do you see people in that scenario or by the time they come to you, is it too late? I mean, what is your, this is obviously not specific legal advice, but you know, friend advice for someone who's kind of in that cycle of a hot and cold relationship. You know, it's funny because I've seen those facts and then they've spent tens of thousands of dollars on attorney's fees trying to get a divorce and then they say you know what we're going to work it out and they work it out (laughs) you know but eventually they'll end up back in my office um in some of those cases you know i think those are the the harder ones to play out right are there more hot times than cold times are the hot times worth the cold times, I guess, is a question that I would tell my friend to consider. I always say is like set a timer in your head of, okay, I'm unhappy today. If I'm unhappy six months from now, let's take a look at that. If I'm unhappy one year from now, you know, and like kind of plot it on a graph. Obviously, if it's a vicious, vicious cycle and you don't have hope that it's going to end, I guess. Right. And I guess if you're in that cycle, my advice would be to seek the assistance of a counselor of marriage and family therapist mm-hmm. to either do individual or or marital therapy, couples therapy. And I will say sometimes in couples therapy, I've heard from, from clients, I haven't um, actually experienced this myself, but um, I've heard from clients that sometimes in couples therapy, the therapist will say, maybe you're here to say goodbye to one another. Wow. Maybe this isn't going to work, you know? So, so, uh, you know, I don't know which therapist said that or if they're any good or not, but maybe you are incompatible, but you know, by the time someone is sitting in my office, they pretty much decided they're They're moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. They're moving forward or, or they've already 
separated um, from the spouse. You know, one of them has already moved out. They just need to get all their finances and custody orders in place and all that. But, you know, they've already made the decision. What I, I guess would be important for your listeners to understand, and it's interesting because it's mostly women that come to me that are, they feel so liberated. I've made this decision. I am leaving him, you know, mm. um, screw him. I am a woman. Hear me roar. I am going to move on with my life. Oh, wait a second. I have to actually divorce this person. <laughs> so that is a process in and of itself that can take several months or years. And it's not fun. Um, so before you go, you know, pounding on your chest, you know, you got to deal with the actual divorce itself. And, and it is stressful. And I think they say that divorce is either the second or first or no, the second or third stressor, major stressor in your life after. I think the first is losing a child, and divorce is either second or third after losing a parent. So it's a it's a not a, not a fun time. Yeah, it is not a fun time. So I always tell my clients, my advice is it's going to get worse, but it's going to get better. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but right now it's if they're sitting in my office for the initial consultation, it will get worse but eventually it'll get better. So let's say that we are sitting in your office for the initial consultation. Mm -hmm. They haven't done anything yet. Maybe they haven't even said to their husband that they're meeting with you. Right. What are some tips for if you're a stay-at-home mom, how to protect yourself um, or versus like maybe you're the breadwinner? Um, advice for them. Right. So um, first for the stay-at-home mom, uh, we call them in the industry the outspouse. Um, if they're the ones that do not, you know, the traditional stay-at-home mom that doesn't pay the bills, that doesn't necessarily have a full understanding or knowledge of the party's finances. Um, you know, my advice is always make copies, make copies, make copies, make copies. Whatever you can find, tax returns, bank statements, stock brokerage statements, um, deeds, mortgage statements, Anything that you can find in your home office or that comes in the mail that has your name on it. You're not supposed to open your spouse's mail. That's a crime. Um, so anything that you find, make copies of it. Take photos on your phone. Do whatever it is that you need to do so that you can get all the information um, that you have. And if you're still, you know, if your husband has shared information with you in the past, you know, just ask him for it. Like, hey, where's where's this? Or or if you have a common login for online banking, just log in and download like the last three years of statements or something. Um, it's it's a lot of work, but believe me, it'll save you a ton of work and, and money going through the divorce trying to get those documents. So that's for the, the stay-at-home mom. And, you know, there's other factors that depend on, you know, it depends on what you want out of the divorce. If you want more time with your kids, for example, you don't want to have 50-50 custody and your husband likes to drink a lot or you're the, the, what we call the primary caretaker of the children. You take them to doctor's appointments and school and, and all of that. Start creating a log of what activities you took your children to when. I mean, that's probably pretty easy to do for most stay-at-home moms. You probably already have a calendar anyways, but do that. If your husband is drinking or has some issues that concern you regarding the safety of the children, you know, take a log and or photos to, to, to evidence that. So that would be my advice for stay-at-home moms. Wow. That's great. I never, none of that has ever occurred to me. Well, all of that is very important. I mean, the, the, that's the sort of evidence the court looks at. You know, the court looks at what the children's schedule is, how each parent's schedule fits into that. You know, if your husband's 
works a lot. Keep a log of what time does he get home from work? Is he getting home at 9, 8? You know, how is he going to take care of the kids half of the time if he's working those hours? Right. Just doesn't make any sense, right? So so that's that's for the, the stay-at-home mom crew. For the, the earning spouses, the breadwinner spouses, <laughs> advice would be, you know, because we're kind of screwed as working women. Um, my advice would be to kind of try to minimize the household expenses. Don't go out and start spending, you know, lavishly. If you if you are spending or your spouse is kind of overspending, try to nip that in the bud Why? if it's possible. Why does it matter? Um, well, because uh, the court looks to, in setting spousal support, the court looks at the marital standard of living. So if you have a really high marital standard of wow. living, um, the court is supposed to take that into consideration in setting the amount of spousal support. So um, there would be that. Um, and how far back does the court look? It depends on the case, and it depends on the facts of the case. So if the um, marital standard of living is artificially high, in other words, the parties are going into debt to maintain this facade of this extraordinary marital standard of living, mm -hmm. the court can't use the marital standard of living, right? That wouldn't be fair. But also, if the marital standard of living is artificially low, um, then the court has to take that into consideration as well or give the other spouse sufficient funds to invest and and uh, save if that's something that the parties did during the marriage. And what about um, going back to work? After you get a divorce, does the court say like, all right, player, it's time to get a job again? Yes. Yes, the court does say that. The court, um, both parents, um, both parties have a duty to, to themselves to be self-supporting and also have a duty to financially support their children. So I've had clients tell me, like, well, what am I supposed to do, be a barista at Starbucks? I said, if that's the only job you can get, yes, with the caveat of unless it affects that parent's ability to care for the minor children that are in their, their primary care or something along those lines. All and jobs that, affect your ability to care for your child. Well, not necessarily. If you have school-age children that are involved in activities mm -hmm. and, you know, they they don't have any special needs or anything like that, then the children are, well, pre-COVID at least, the children would be in school, you know, from 8 to 3, and maybe there's after-school care for not that much, not that expensive until five, you can go out and get a job and work right. from eight to five. You should be able to do that. That's not going to impair your ability to care for the children. Um, and I will say that part of child support, both parties have to pay 50%, at least 50% um, of, of any child care incurred for the purpose of, of work for either party to work during their custodial time. So you're not paying for 100% of it. Your spouse, your ex-spouse or your spouse would be paying for the other half. But in any event, in the cases where I've seen it matter, like, hey, this woman cannot, it's usually the woman, I'm being sexist there, but this woman cannot go back to work. And why can't she go back to work? She can't go back to work because, and this was a real case that I had, but because she had a child that was born with some birth defects and has a feeding tube and has to be, you know, has multiple therapies per day and she was driving around town and there was just no way that this mother could go back to work. Mm. So in those sorts of cases, I think it would be appropriate for the court to use zero for that spouse's income in determining child support and determining spousal support. And that's ultimately what we did. But in other cases, if a parent refuses to go back to work, and this is important to note, but if a parent just like kind of sits back and is collecting support and they're just saying, screw this, I'm never going to go to work, the court can do what, what we call impute income, which means 
put income on the side of the parent that's not working and pretend like they are working even though they aren't. Even though, yeah, uh, minimum wage is like the court will impute minimum wage is a knee-jerk reaction. They will just do it. Maybe not right now because of COVID and, and its its effect on the job market, but pre-COVID, minimum wage was just anybody can go out and get a job for minimum wage. And I've even seen it happen, though, in other cases where parents are intentionally underemployed, and I've successfully won trials where, you know, the parent is making, let's say, $100,000 a year, but we have evidence that they are capable of making $200,000 a year, the court will use the $200,000 figure. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's tough. So let's say that I used to be a worker and I used to make 200 grand, but now I have a job and I'm only making 60. I They could say, well, you got to come up with the extra buck 40. Right. Well, the idea, the idea is, is that the, the standard for that, I will tell you, is that the parent has the ability to earn that additional income and the opportunity to earn that additional income. And I will say that the court usually only does that when there's some sort of evidence that parent has intentionally become underemployed for purposes of reducing their support obligation. Got it. Okay. So my next question for you is, say that you know, most of our listeners are college educated, pretty affluent, but not necessarily the like one percenters. Maybe they don't want to spend tens to hundreds of thousand dollars on a divorce. What is the deciding factor between mediation, kind of doing it on the cheap versus going full-fledged divorce attorney court style? Well, uh, first, let's talk about the different styles that there are. Okay. I am a litigator. Um, I That being said, I do settle a lot of my cases because most clients, even if they have millions of dollars, don't want to spend, you know, I mean, to go to trial on a case, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more. So, I mean, I've seen clients spend millions of dollars on, on attorney fees alone. So wow. that is, is you know, a, a huge motivator to settle your case, right? You, I mean, you want to pay the mother of your children or do you want to pay the attorney? I mean, you know, it's kind of silly in some cases, unless there's actual issues like legal issues pertaining to property. And that's why I say I do complex family law, because those cases, sometimes you need to go to trial, right? And sometimes there's enough money on the line to go to trial. But those are few and far between. And and we're talking about your listeners here. So that's one route, which is litigation. You go to court, you know, the judge makes a a decision. um, And just because you go the little litigation route doesn't mean you can't eventually come to a settlement, but it's definitely the most expensive route. Then you have traditional mediation, right, where you and your spouse go to a mediator and you have a few sessions with them. The mediator walks you through the required forms. You guys do that, and then you come to some sort of an agreement. People sign the agreement, and they go merrily along their way. Then there's another thing called collaborative divorce. Collaborative divorce is kind of a... Uh, hybrid of litigation and mediation. You each have an attorney. Usually if there's a forensic accountant needed, you'll have a joint forensic accountant and the collaborative attorneys and experts. Sometimes if there's custody issues, you may have a collaborative custody expert, a mental health professional that opines on, on the custody issues. You go through this process, you try to reach a settlement if you reach a settlement, all is fine and well, and you can move on with your life, your divorce, you move on with your life. If you don't reach a settlement, everything that was done during the collaborative divorce process 
is not admissible in the litigation. So, because mediation is privileged, right? So, collaborative divorce is also privileged. So, any documents that were prepared in connection with the collaborative divorce, other than those documents that were filed with the court, none of that becomes admissible. So you kind of have to start from square one wow. if you go into litigation. So it can be collaborative divorce can be less expensive in the sense that you're not preparing the motions and the pleadings that you would be preparing if you were to be litigating a case. But it will ultimately be more expensive if you do not resolve your divorce via the collaborative divorce process. So how would you know, how would you make the call between mediation and collaborative divorce? Well, I'll tell you cases that I think are not good for either mediation or, or collaborative divorce. But what if you don't have um, hundreds of thousands of dollars? Like what if litigation is just not an option? Okay. So, so let's go with litigation not being an option if you don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars. By the way, the number one reason to litigate rather than to do mediation or divorce is that your income and assets are complex. If your income and assets are complex, you have millions of dollars. So, you know, I'm not saying you should blow it all on attorney's fees, but that's when you want to make the investment, I think, to ensure that your spouse is signing documents under penalty of perjury, that they've disclosed everything. I think it just minimizes the, I guess, risk that either side is committing perjury or fraud or anything like that, okay? Because people can say whatever they want to say during mediation and collaborative divorce. It will never come back to bite them. Got it. Because all of it is inadmissible. Okay. Well, okay. To make the d distinction between mediation and collaborative divorce, I would say it would be maybe a personal preference because in collaborative divorce, you have your own attorney. You have someone that's on your side kind of fighting for you, if you will. But in mediation, and, and that person can give you legal advice. In mediation, the mediator is there to give general information regarding family law and to help you reach an agreement. That's their job. Their job is not to investigate or to find out, you know, what the extent of your income and assets are or your spouse's income and assets are. Um, they're just to make they're just there to make sure that you reach an agreement and you sign all the required forms so you can get your divorce. Got it. Okay. And the mediator will a hundred percent tell you before you sign that final agreement, they will advise you they are required to do this, to seek independent legal counsel to review the agreement before signing it. Okay. So it's always a good idea to have yes, an attorney absolutely. in your back pocket, if not in your front pocket. And I will say for a much lower fee than I would charge to an, a case that I'm actually doing litigation, I've done that before. They, people have hired me to simply review a mediation agreement. Okay. Good tip. Okay. My last question for you, does anybody ever regret Divorce. I mean, I know divorce is such a life-changing, big ordeal that's super stressful, like you said, you know, top three stressors of life. But once it's over, is everyone like, yeah, I'm glad I did that. Life goes on and I'm, I'm a liberated woman now or whatever. Or do you ever see people that are like, I miss, I, I miss my husband? Yeah, I think both things happen. I think it depends on the case. You know, I have seen women who are free and liberated and they're like that's the best thing I ever did and why did I waste all those years with this loser and you know I I am so happy that I did this and then I see other cases where people you know are not so happy that they did it I, I think it depends on the case and the family I've had family members of mine nobody I've represented but family members of mine tell me I, I shouldn't have done that 
wow. I blew up my family for no reason. And, and I was selfish. That was the thing was that it came down to them being selfish and they thought that life would be better on the grass is always greener and then it wasn't. I guess so. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. All right, Janina, this has been so informative. I learned so much and I hope that our listeners did too. If you're thinking about a divorce, I hope that you listen to this. If you know someone who you think might be unhappy in their marriage, maybe forward it on over to them. That's another thing with friends. I feel like it's hard. It's almost like taboo to ask like, hey, like, how's your marriage going? What do you think about that? I would have to agree with that. But I will tell you, as the divorce attorney in most, the the only divorce attorney in most of my circles of friends, I am the first to know, and I I am sworn (laughs) to secrecy, but I am always the first to know when there is trouble. (laughs) And and it's not necessarily a position I enjoy because I have to act like nothing's happening and like I know nothing. But I am everyone's first call, which makes sense, right? Yeah. I do think it's somewhat taboo. and, And I also think nobody wants to just come right out and say, oh, my marriage sucks. I'm so unhappy because you just don't want to say that to unless I think once someone actually starts speaking that way, they're actually ready to pull the plug. Really? I think so. Okay. Well, this was honestly so amazing. I just want to say thank you so much. If it's okay with you, I could link out your um, law firm's info on the show notes. And if you don't want me to. absolutely. Okay, great. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week, y'all. If you like the show and there's something you want to talk about or want me to talk about, feel free to hit me up on Instagram at no sex in the suburbs, or you can email me at no sex in the suburbs podcast at gmail.com. Talk soon. Mm-hmm.